0: tonight I want to look together with you at Psalm number six, Psalm number six. And tonight I don't have an outline. You can see that on the back of the prayer sheet. And so I want to do something a little bit different. I would like to get some more input from you. I just want to walk through the Psalm and try to get some more interaction, some question and answers and some discussion. And So, tonight we're looking at Psalm 6, and before I read the psalm, I'm going to read it as a whole, and before I do that, I want you to be thinking about, as we're reading it, what kind of a psalm it is. So, let me give you some options ahead of time. So, in the book of Psalms, we have different genres, or different types of psalms. So, one really easy example to find is psalms of praise. An example of that would be the last psalm, Psalm 150, that pretty much the whole psalm is just about praise of the Lord. Usually it, is, it begins with a declaration of praise and then often is followed by reasons for praise, descriptive praise. So it would say something like everyone praise the Lord and then for or because... And then it starts to list all these things about who God is or what God has done. And the whole thing is just focused on praise. So a psalm of praise. Another option and one that is found many places throughout the psalms is a psalm of lament. So a lament is generally focused around a problem. And that problem can take on many forms. It can be a personal problem such as health, physical, it could be spiritual. It could be an external problem, such as enemies. But there's some issue that the psalmist is mourning. He's in mourning, he's in lament, and he's, he's offering that lament to God and seeking God's help in that lament. And so that's another option. Another option would be a psalm of thanksgiving. Now, sometimes a psalm of lament and a psalm of thanksgiving can appear very similar because they both will talk about a problem. But in a psalm of lament, the problem is much more heightened. It's much more in focus. Whereas in a psalm of thanksgiving, a problem is mentioned, but then it is turned around fairly quickly into thankfulness for the Lord resolving that problem. So they both will mention problems, but in a psalm of lament, the the issue is more front and center and in a psalm of thanksgiving there's usually a resolution to the problem within the psalm itself and the psalmist is thanking god for that another one another major one would be like a wisdom psalm or a psalm of torah psalm 1 psalm 19 psalm 119 would be examples of those where it is mostly focused on the law of god and how its benefits and all that it does for us as God's people. So a a wisdom or a Torah psalm. Uh, You also have some other that show up occasionally throughout the psalms. A psalm of trust is fundamentally just uh, ascribing to God confidence, faith, that God will do what he has said he will do. So those are just kind of broad brush different categories of psalms. Before I read Psalm 6, I just wanted to give that to you so we could be thinking about what kind of a psalm is Psalm 6. So let's read through it together and then get your input on what kind of psalm you think it is. So it begins with the title or the superscription for the director of music with stringed instruments according to Sheminith, a psalm of David. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord, how long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back. And suddenly be put to shame. I'm going to go back to the beginning. But as I do that, what kind of psalm do you think it is? Lament. Lament. Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. Who votes lament? (laughs) What's that? cry Cry for mercy. It is generally regarded as a psalm of lament. Now within the psalms of lament, there are individual psalms of lament And there are community psalms of lament. Which one do you think this would fit into? Is it more focused on a person, an individual, or the whole community of God? Yeah, it's more personal, isn't it? It's more individual. So this is an individual psalm of lament. As we kind of walk through it, one of the main questions of interpretation about this psalm is, what is the problem? What is the nature of the problem? Because as you read through it, it seems to take on various forms, different. It, it comes in different ways. And we'll, we'll talk about that as we walk through it. But first, let's look at the title, the, the introduction to the psalm. It says, for the director of music with stringed instruments, according to Sheminith, a psalm of David, how many different translations do we have represented tonight? Who, ha- who has the King James with you? All right. Got a new King James. Okay. Anybody with English Standard Version? Okay. Old King James? Got some with the Old King James Version? New American Standard Bible? Okay. So we've got a few different translations. In the title to this psalm in the King James, it says, To the chief musician on Neganote nega note and that is what all the modern translations translate as stringed instruments so it is a plural form that we've instead of just giving the Hebrew word for it we've translated it into most likely what it's referring to you which is James, the says eight string. Eight string. that's actually the next word that's a, what's um what does it say right before that eight-stringed it says uh, to the chief musician stringed instruments yeah that's the one so, yeah so with stringed instruments is the the Neganoth, okay so all the modern translations have that the king james has Neganoth. the sheminith is what the new king james calls an eight-stringed lyre and there's actually quite a bit of divergence on this word, and you can kind of track it. You can kind of track our thinking on this word as it's been translated through the centuries. The King James Version has sheminith so it leaves it as the Hebrew word. Then as you kind of move forward into more modern translations, it attempts to translate it. So in, in the New King James Version, And in the English Standard Version, I'm sorry, no, the New American Standard Bible, it translates it as an eight-string lyre. But then, the even newer translations, like the English Standard Version and the NIV and the recent Christian Standard Bible, they go back to Sheminith. Why? Because we don't really know for sure what it's referring to. So, the more that we've looked at this word, we're not confident that it is referring to an instrument, which the New American Standard Bible and New King James have an eight-stringed lyre. We're not 100% confident on that, and so we went back to just leave it as is because we're not 100% sure what it is. In the footnote to the, I think it's in the ESV, it says it's probably a musical or liturgical term. In the footnote to the American Standard Bible, right next to an eight-string lyre, it says, or according to a lower octave. Now, if you know anything about music, you know that an octave is how many notes? It's eight, right? Eight. <laughs> I'm going to give you a quiz later. So an octave is eight. So you can see, the, you can see an eight-string lyre, or another possibility is an octave below the common the commonality there is we know that this word has something to do with the number eight. But that's about as far as we can go with any kind of certainty. So some have said it's an eight-stringed instrument. Some have said it's more of a musical term to the pitch. It's hard to know for sure. Now, the bonus for us is it, it doesn't greatly affect our understanding of the psalm, right? So a lot of these psalm terms that you'll find in the superscriptions and the titles we don't know exactly what these instruments look like we don't know exactly how they were chanted or how they were sung yeah
1: yeah
0: yeah yeah an a-stringed lyre or harp yeah it's Uh, That's a possibility. It's that they saw the the root eight in there and assumed it was some kind of a musical instrument. Yeah. Yeah. But it is some kind of a musical term, but we're not 100% sure on what it means. But it is a psalm of David. And so this psalm is attributed to David. So he is the writer of this psalm. And so whatever the problem is that's going on, it is uh, most likely coming from something in David's life, something that that has been happening to him personally. Now, we can't nail it down with any kind of specificity in terms of what story we might attach it to, say in First or Second Samuel, because it doesn't give us enough information in the psalm to really connect it to anything specific. But something in David's life uh, to which he's crying out to God. So verse 1, he says, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. What's David's assumption regarding this problem? That it's, from the Lord. that it's from the Lord, perhaps even as a form of discipline from the Lord. And so whatever this problem, this issue is, he sees it as the Lord's disciplining hand and so he's asking the Lord to lift that disciplining hand in mercy and to show him compassion. And one of the things that you'll see as you read through the Psalms, and this is one of the things that you can still see in English after it's been translated from Hebrew, is you can still see some of the poetic elements. And one of those poetic elements that you can see fairly clearly in English, is parallelism. And often Hebrew, when we think of English poetry, oftentimes we think of rhyming. You know, rhyming lines or a certain number of syllables. That's English poetry. Hebrew poetry wasn't really concerned about rhyming. There was some use of alliteration where they might start the sentence with the same letters. Like, for example, Psalm 119. So alliteration or an acrostic So they do have forms like that. But rhyming, like at the end of a line, you really won't, that's not something you find in Hebrew poetry. But parallelism, where you have two lines, or maybe sometimes three, but usually two lines that are parallel with each other, and they say roughly the same thing, but in different terms. And so you can see that in verse one. First he calls to the Lord as the the direct address. Then he says, do not rebuke me In your anger now when you go to the second line the parallel to rebuke is discipline right so don't rebuke me don't discipline me two different words but communicating essentially the same thing but maybe a little bit different nuance different shade but essentially the same thing and then he says don't rebuke me in your anger And then the parallel to that is wrath at the end of the verse. So again, two different words for the Lord's anger or displeasure. So this was a way of, it was a a memory device to have parallel lines like this, but also uh, for emphasis and to reinforce through literary form the message of the psalm. So he's crying out to the Lord for mercy. And he says exactly that in verse two, have mercy on me, Lord for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. He says, again, you can see the parallelism here. Have mercy on me is parallel to heal me. And then I am faint is parallel to my bones being in agony. So you can see that parallelism there. In verse 2, what would you say the problem is? If you only had to go off of verse 2, what is, what is David's problem? is it spiritual, physical, social, military, you know, what what's what seems to be the problem in verse 2 if you just had verse 2 to go off of. It looks physical, doesn't it? Yeah. So he's talking about being faint, his his body being weary. He talks about his bones in agony and this is an interesting word at the end of verse 2 and I have six translations on my sheet here, parallel to each other, and there's five different words in those six translations. So there's, uh, there's some, even some debate about what's David, what David, what is David trying to emphasize with this word? So the NIV has, my bones are in agony. The old King James has, my bones are vexed. The new King James, my bones are troubled. The New American Standard Bible has my bones are dismayed. English Standard Version, my bones are troubled. And then the Christian Standard Bible has my bones are shaking, trembling. And so what's going on here? Is this something physical or is this metaphorical? So where he's using physical terms, his bones shaking, but that's communicating something even deeper than just the physical problem that that something else is going on in his life maybe spiritual or or something that's causing this faintness or the shaking of his bones so it's a it's an interesting way that he puts it in verse three he says my soul is in deep anguish how long lord how long now we seem to be moving more into the realm of the mental or the spiritual the psychological So in verse two, he says, I'm faint. It's more of a physical weariness or weakness. My bones are in agony or trembling. But then in verse three, he says, my soul is in anguish. He's miserable. And you can see that misery when he cries out to the Lord, how long? How long is this going to last? How many of us have ever prayed that prayer? Lord, how long? That That's the prayer of God's people walking through the fire. They're crying to the Lord, but Lord, how long? Please let your mercy fall on me. In verse four, he specifically cries to the Lord for him to deliver him. He says, turn Lord and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. So here he's, he's crying for deliverance for salvation and again you can see the parallelism of deliver and save save me because of your unfailing lord of your unfailing love so now he's turning his attention to the character of god isn't he this is this is that word that you almost have to kind of know this hebrew word because it's all over the old testament the word is hesed And it refers to God's loyalty, his mercy, his faithfulness, his love, his grace. It takes on all these kind of different shades of meaning, depending on the context. But it's rooted in covenant. It's covenant love or covenant loyalty. And so David is crying out to God on the basis of that for the Lord to deliver him. So, God, we're in covenant. You've made promises. Your love is unfailing. Have mercy on me. Deliver me. So, verse 2, maybe physical. Verse 3, maybe spiritual, psychological. Verse 4, he's crying out for salvation. In verse 5, he says, Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? Why would he mention death? Yeah, that, that's his point, exactly. Yeah, is he, he wants to be alive so he can praise God with his voice. Seems that, because he mentions this, that maybe he feels like his life is in danger. If it's sickness, maybe he feels his sickness is so severe that it could lead to death. If it's something else, some kind of mortal danger, he feels like that death is a possibility. And he's crying out to God for God to spare him, to have mercy on him, to allow him to go on continuing living so he can continue to praise God. Yeah. That's very possible. I mean, and, and we're going to get, as we move forward into this psalm, we're going to see that it takes on another dimension when he starts mentioning enemies. So, that's why I've said it. sometime and nailing down this problem in, in Psalm 6 is hard. Is it, is it physical? Is it an illness? Is it enemies who are against him, chasing him, like maybe Saul and, and his forces hunting down David? It, it's hard to say with 100% certainty. But his point in verse 5 is he wants to go on living so that he can go on praising God and, and declaring God's goodness. In verse 6, he says, I am worn out from my groaning all night long i flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears again that's mental emotional psychological isn't it that's sorrow discouragement depression now could that be related to physical sure could that be related to enemies it could and you might see where I'm going with this, but my, my view on Psalm 6 is that they're all interrelated and that there are physical symptoms of his, of his situation that he's in, a situation that either his enemies are directly causing or at least his enemies are gloating over that he's in this situation. And, and so it seems to be kind of a mixture of spiritual, psychological, physical, you know, political even, with with enemies against him. But here we see him in, in deep lament, in sorrow, crying. That's really incredible imagery, isn't it? He says, all night long I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. There again you can see that parallelism. Kind of saying the same thing with added just variety, literary variety and, and emphasis. In verse 7 he says, my eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of my foes. This is the first time we see that reference to something external, don't we? Up until this point in the psalm, he's been talking about physical symptoms. My bone's shaking. I'm faint. Emotional symptoms. I'm weeping. I'm crying. I'm I'm worn out. Here, he mentions something external to himself, foes, enemies. He says, my eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. So I think then we can connect what he was saying in verse six about his crying, his weeping, because in verse seven, he mentions his eyes growing weak with sorrow seems to be connected to his weeping in verse 6 and then he links it then to his foes at the end of verse 7 so it seems like whatever his psychological depression spiritual depression is in verse 6 it is connected to his enemies and whatever it is that they're plotting against him or doing against him and he's, he's moved to the point of weakness and sorrow now he turns his attention full on toward these foes toward these enemies and in verse eight he says away from me all you who do evil for the lord has heard my weeping so now he turns his attention to the enemies and he's wishing for them to be gone to to go away in the context of declaring his confidence in the lord so may my enemies be gone turn away, go away, because the Lord has heard. So he's confident in the Lord's hearing of his prayer that that will result in his deliverance. And he says that very clearly in verse 9. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. So you can kind of see how the psalm has come full circle now, right? So in verse 1, He's crying out for this mercy. He's saying, Lord, hear me, please come to my aid. And now in verse nine, he's saying, the Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. And so there's a confidence, a trust. And then in verse 10, he says, all my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. This is what you might call in the Psalms an imprecation. A for God's justice to come on those who are in opposition to him and and for God's justice to vindicate him in his innocence and to take care of those who are enemies of David, but also enemies of God, because David is the Lord's anointed. So, Lord, may your justice come and may my enemies be overwhelmed with shame and anguish and may they be turned back and suddenly put to shame. So what is David going through here? Again, we can't pinpoint it with 100% accuracy because one, there's not enough information in the psalm itself in terms of you know, a name of a person or an enemy, a place, a setting within David's life. And we'd also, we also don't have that in the title of the psalm. So we don't know exactly where to place it in David's life. Snook mentioned you know, when he was on the run from David, or from Saul and Saul was trying to kill him very possible that could be one of those instances in his life it could be later on after he became king it could be a political military enemy Philistines around Israel it could have been somebody within his own kingdom plotting against him such as we see different times in David's reign as king so we don't know exactly but it seems like what's going on is a merging together of several things. Enemies are somehow involved, either directly causing or at least making worse his problem that's going on. They're either directly causing it or they're at least taking advantage of it, of that moment, of that opportunity, and they're plotting against David and they're they're gloating over David's weakness and his downfall. So there's enemies, there's physical symptoms of shaking, quaking, weariness. There's emotional pouring out of heart, of crying and tears. A lot of these symptoms are what we're gonna start talking about in a couple of weeks with depression. Because depression can have some of these symptoms. It can have physical symptoms. Depression can have emotional, psychological symptoms. It can be exacerbated, made worse by circumstances or enemies or people that are working against you. David is dealing with depression here, but the lesson, just to kind of get us oriented in the right path for a couple weeks from tonight, is where does David go? He goes to the Lord, doesn't he? He goes to the Lord. So... And we're going to talk about depression from many different angles as we walk through this book together. But we, we need to remember that whatever course of treatment we seek, uh, and there are, there are many different ways to limit, to help with, to diminish uh, symptoms of depression, our ultimate help is the Lord, isn't he? Our ultimate help, our ultimate place of security is the Lord. And So this is just a lesson for us in a couple of ways. One, to remind us that no matter what the situation is in life, we can go to the Lord. And the Lord knows and the Lord understands. I'm thankful that we have a great high priest, don't we? We have a great high priest in Jesus who has endured much of this. Jesus is the son of David, isn't he? And we see Jesus... Having physical symptoms of grief and anxiety when he's on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our Savior Jesus has gone through what we've gone through. And so uh, he, is, he has endured this life and all of its weaknesses and hardships. And so we have a, a very empathetic high priest who knows our weaknesses. So we can go to God and we can go to him through Jesus, our intercessor. And the other lesson of this psalm is that is the confidence, the trust that we should have in God, that no matter what is going on, that God has his people within his hand and that he cares for them. And yes, there may be hard times when we look up to the Lord and we say, Lord, how long, how much longer is this going to go on? And those times are going to come. But the Lord is with his children and he will not abandon them. As David says in the prayer, he is the God of of faithful love, unfailing love. And so we need to to continue to undergird ourselves with the promises of the word of God and remind us and and preach to ourselves these truths that, that we can have confidence in the Lord. Not because we're great, but because he is. He's great.